Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 48. I'm Nachi. And I'm Mega, and we're back with some more high-yield emergency medicine board review. Let's jump right into the questions this week. We're headed to the pediatric emergency department for our first patient. An eight-year-old previously healthy boy presents with atraumatic lower back pain that radiates down his left leg. He's also had a fever for four days. The pain is worse with bending and twisting. Physical exam is remarkable only for tenderness to palpation over the lumbar spine. What is the next best step in the management of this patient? Is it A, ibuprofen and follow-up with his pediatrician, B, MRI of the lumbar spine, C, plain radiographs of the lumbar spine, or D, urinalysis? This patient has symptoms consistent with discitis, which is an infection of the nucleus pulposus. This can involve the cartilaginous end plate and vertebral body. Diagnosis here is made by answer choice B, MRI of the lumbar spine. MRI can also rule out other critical diagnoses, including an epidural abscess. Remember that discitis can occur spontaneously or after a surgical procedure. Patients present with severe pain that's localized to the spinal level involved, and the lumbar spine is the spinal level that's most commonly involved. The average age of patients is about 7 years old, and radicular symptoms and fever are common presenting complaints, but they're not always present. Let's go over the other answer choices. Choice A, ibuprofen and follow-up, is incorrect because there's a higher likelihood of serious pathology in pediatric patients presenting with back pain compared to adults. Choice C, plain radiographs of the spine, are not helpful in the early clinical course of the disease, but may reveal disc-based destruction after two to four weeks of symptoms. Choice D, urinalysis, is not indicated as this patient doesn't have any urinary symptoms. And do you remember what the most common etiologic agent of discitis is? That would be staph aureus. So make sure your choice of IV antibiotics adequately covers for this. All right, for the next question, mobilize your trauma team to the trauma room. A 40-year-old man is brought to the emergency department after being assaulted during a bar fight. He has proptosis of the right eye with a measured intraocular pressure of 50. A lateral canthotomy is started. Once the Kelly clamp is released from the lateral canthus, what is the appropriate next step? Is it A, clamp the medial canthus? B. Cut the inferior cruise of the lateral canthal tendon. C. Cut the superior cruise of the lateral canthal tendon. Or D. Recheck the intraocular pressure. Okay, let's first go over how to perform a lateral canthotomy. You first anesthetize the lateral canthus with lidocaine with epinephrine, and then crush the lateral canthus with a straight Kelly clamp for one to two minutes. When the clamp is removed, you do answer choice B. You cut the inferior cruise of the lateral canthal tendon. The procedure is successful if the intraocular pressure is lowered and the pain and visual acuity improve. If not, then you perform answer choice C and cut the superior cruise also to allow for further decompression. Ophthalmology should be consulted emergently in all cases. The lateral canthotomy in this case was performed to relieve intraocular pressure from a retrobulbar hematoma or post-septal hemorrhage, which would create orbital compartment syndrome and require immediate decompression. Again, this is an ophthalmologic emergency. Primary indications for performing a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis include decreased visual acuity, intraocular pressure greater than 40, and proptosis. Secondary indications are afferent pupillary defect, cherry red macula, ophthalmoplegia, and eye pain. Globe rupture is a contraindication to performing this procedure. Let's go over the other answer choices here also. Choice A, cut the medial canthus. That's never an indication for this procedure. And choice D, rechecking intraocular pressure. That should be done after the inferior cruise of the rectus sheath is cut to see if adequate decompression was performed. Okay, here's another quick high-yield follow-up. Do you know what a flat anterior chamber indicates? 
flat anterior chamber. That should make you think of a globe rupture. All right, Mega, we got a little math coming up in this next one, so get your calculator out. A 25-year-old man weighing about 70 kilograms presents to the ED after sustaining burns to the hands, legs, and chest after falling into a bonfire. On physical exam, there are partial thickness burns on the upper half of the anterior torso, along with the bilateral palms of the hands and bilateral anterior legs. How much fluid should this patient receive in the first eight hours? Is it A, 10,640 milliliters, B, 4,060 milliliters, C, 5,320 milliliters, or D, 8,120 milliliters? Let's use the Parkland formula to decide on fluid resuscitation. The Parkland formula calls for a volume of 4 milliliters times body weight in kilograms times percent total body surface area of the burn. The total body surface area can be estimated by using the rule of nines, with a palm equaling 1% of the total body surface area. So for our patient, it's going to be 9% for the upper half of the anterior torso, 2% for bilateral palms, and 18% for bilateral anterior legs, which is a total of 29%. Plugged into the Parkland formula, we get 8,120 milliliters to be given to the patient over the first 24 hours. Half of that, which is 4,060 milliliters, or answer choice B, should be given to this patient in the first eight hours. And very importantly, this patient meets burn center referral criteria. He has partial thickness burns that are greater than 10% of the total body surface area, and these burns involve the hands. As we finish calling our neighborhood burn center, the nurse brings in a 64-year-old man with progressively worsening cough and shortness of breath over the last several weeks. He has also been more fatigued and is unable to get around the house anymore. He denies fever and night sweats. He takes lisinopril for his blood pressure and has no other medical problems. He is an immigrant from Argentina where he used to work as a minor. He denies any tobacco use. Chest x-ray shows bilateral diffuse ground glass opacities. What is the most likely diagnosis based on this presentation? Is it A, histoplasmosis, B, miliary tuberculosis, C, pneumoconiosis, or D, sarcoidosis? Did you say he used to work as a minor? This patient is most likely presenting with answer choice C, pneumoconiosis, a restrictive lung disease often caused by inhalation of dust, often in mines. Pneumoconiosis actually encompasses many occupational lung diseases, including co-workers pneumoconiosis, silicosis, and asbestosis. Treatment is largely supportive and includes reducing further lung insults by limiting exposures. Corticosteroids have been used to decrease inflammation, but no large randomized trials have been performed to truly know their benefit. Lung location can help you distinguish the etiology of different types of pneumoconiosis. For example, coal dust, beryllium, talc, and silica, they present predominantly with upper lobe pathologies, whereas hard metals like cobalt and asbestos present predominantly with lower lobe pathologies. Let's go over the other answer choices for this question also. Choice A, histoplasmosis. This is a fungal lung disease that can also present with bilateral ground glass opacities on chest x-ray. The patients at risk for histoplasmosis often include the very old and very young immunocompromised individuals and people who live in areas where histoplasmosis is endemic in the soil, like Ohio and the Mississippi River Valleys. Choice B, miliary TB, that's generally found in those with risk factors for having TB, including immunocompromised individuals, those with previous TB, and individuals from endemic areas. Additionally, patients with long-standing TB more often present with low-grade fever and night sweats. And lastly, choice D, sarcoidosis. That's more common in African Americans and people of Scandinavian descent. Presentation here is usually between the ages of 20 and 40. Although it can be difficult to differentiate sarcoidosis from other entities, 
the mining risk factor in this question should lead you towards pneumoconiosis instead of sarcoidosis. As you're reassuring your patient with pneumoconiosis, the nurse calls you to the triage area for a possible stroke code. A 53-year-old man presents with numbness to his right hand for three to four months. He states that he has numbness with waking up in the morning, which gets better when he shakes hands. He indicates that he has numbness to his first, second, and third digits on the right hand. Which of the following tests is most sensitive for this diagnosis? Is it A, Finkelstein's test, B, median nerve compression test, C, Phelan's test, or D, Tonell's sign? Hmm, let's cancel that stroke code. First of all, did you say three to four months? This patient is presenting with signs and symptoms consistent with carpal tunnel syndrome, which is the most common entrapment neuropathy of the wrist and is caused by compression of the median nerve. Associated symptoms include numbness and weakness of the first three digits that are worse with activity but improve with shaking their hands out. Choice B, median nerve compression testing, consists of direct pressure application to the median nerve at the carpal tunnel. It is positive if this maneuver reproduces the symptoms and is 87% sensitive and 90% specific for the diagnosis. Oh, but what about Phelan's and Tonell's? I thought one of those would be the best test for carpal tunnel syndrome. Actually, contrary to the classically taught Choice C, Phelan's, and Choice D, Tonell's tests for the diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome, these tests suffer from a low sensitivity of 76% for Phelan's test and 42-85% for Tonell's test. Wow, that's much lower than the 87% of the median nerve compression test. And I remember that choice A, Finkelstein's test, which involves forced ulnar deviation of the wrist with the thumb adducted, that's used in the diagnosis of D. Quervain's tenosynovitis. For treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome, wrist splinting and cortisone injections often relieve symptoms. Referral for orthopedic management is indicated in patients with recurrent or refractory symptoms. Do you ever need an emergent orthopedic consultation for carpal tunnel syndrome? Actually, yes. Acute onset of symptoms over hours suggests the presence of acute median nerve compression, possibly from a fracture or infection, and this may require emergent decompression. All right, Nachi, you're up for the last question of the episode, and you need your trauma team back in the trauma room to end the night. A young man is involved in a motor vehicle collision and sustains a severe head injury. In the ED, his GCS is 7. His blood pressure is 115 over 70, and heart rate is 85. His pupils are 3 millimeters and equal and reactive to light. You intubate the patient and place him on a mechanical ventilator. The fast ultrasound is negative and there are no other obvious injuries. Which of the following is the most important principle to follow in the management of this patient? Is it A. Administer mannitol, B. Avoid hypotension, C. Hyperventilation, or D. Initiate induced hypothermia? The correct answer here is choice B. Avoid hypotension. In patients with traumatic brain injury, hypotension and hypoxia have both been shown to have a devastating effect on outcome. You need to maintain adequate cerebral blood flow in this patient by avoiding hypotension. Choice A, mannitol, is an osmotic agent sometimes utilized in TBI patients when there is evidence of significantly elevated intracranial pressure and impending cerebral herniation. These patients usually have blown pupils, which our patient doesn't have. Choice C, hyperventilation to a PCO2 of 35 can be used transiently to reduce intracerebral pressure because this seems to slightly increase cerebral vascular tone and may enhance cerebral autoregulation. However, prolonged hyperventilation and severe TBI is actually associated with worse outcomes. Choice D, induced hypothermia is not associated with improved outcomes in the treatment of TBI. And do you remember what a normal intracranial pressure is? Normal intracranial pressure is 15 or less. Let's do a quick traumatic brain injury term review. 
What's Cushing reflex? Cushing reflex is a triad of hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory depression. And how about decorticate posturing? Decorticate posturing is upper extremity flexion and lower extremity extension. Think of holding a Coors Light up with your arms flexed. What is decerebral posturing then? Decerebral posturing is extension of the upper and lower extremities. This classically has a worse prognosis than decorticate posturing. If calculating a GCS score, this gets two points, whereas decorticate posturing gets three points. And how about the oculocephalic response? Oculocephalic response is when you turn the patient's head, the eyes move in the opposite direction. This is a sign of intact brainstem function. And last one here. How about the oculovestibular response? Oculovestibular response is when there is downward deviation of eyes with irrigation of the ear with cold water and upward deviation with warm water. No eye movement is concerning for brainstem injury. All right, let's close out this episode with a rapid review. Discitis presents with severe localized radiating pain and the lumbar spine is the most commonly involved. Treatment here is with IV antibiotics. A lateral canthotomy is performed to relieve intraocular pressure from retrobulbar hematoma or a postseptal hemorrhage. It's done by cutting the inferior crus of the lateral canthal tendon. The Parkland formula is used to determine the volume of fluid required for resuscitation of burn patients. It is 4 mLs times body weight in kilograms times percent total body surface area of the burn. Half of this fluid is given within the first 8 hours and the other half over the next 16 hours. Pneumoconiosis is an occupational restrictive lung disease caused by inhalation of dust, often in mines. It presents with bilateral ground glass opacities on chest x-ray. The median nerve compression test is the most sensitive test for confirming carpal tunnel syndrome and consists of direct pressure application to the median nerve at the carpal tunnel. Hypotension and hypoxia have both been shown to have a devastating effect on outcome of patients with traumatic brain injury. That wraps up Rajcast episode 48. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Rajcast. And you can always email us at Rajcast at RajReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. And remember that you can always help us pick questions by identifying ones that you would like us to review. Write Rajcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.